We're in a series uh, called Somewhere in Between, and we're, we're addressing, I believe, an issue that's so predominant in our culture. That is, we can't help but begin to stereotype people. We start to slap labels on, and maybe as Christians, we might be the most guilty as we look at a world that the morals and the morality and the, and the evil about the world, it's easy for us to begin just to attach labels to people. The word for stereotyping defined is a fixed or overgeneralized belief about a particular group or class of people. And what we understand about that is that the scripture gives us some clarity on three types of people, but then it's this strong calling about how we're to treat those types. And, and I wanted just to, to give you some kind of review. Last week, we talked about those who, who don't know God. This morning, I want to talk about those people who claim they do know God. And the third group would be that the Scripture talks about those who are trying to do evil against those who know God. And the Bible just gives clarity on how to treat all those people. In another week, I'm going to give you kind of a, a handout decision tree, but really... One of the things we said last week, and we've been talking as a, a staff and an elder board, that we've got to encourage all of us to enter a conversation. Before we start to strap on labels and, and stereotype people to who they are, who we think they are, you've got to enter in a conversation. And really, as you ask somebody, do they have a faith background, one of two answers, one claims they don't. They might have a background but claim that they don't have relationship with God. The other would be those who claim they do. Uh, hopefully this morning there may be some of you who don't know God, but you're on a search to find God, and many of you do know him. Now the Bible is clear on how to treat at least these two types of people, and we'll talk next week about those people who are trying to do harm to you. But in this, these two groups, what, what are we to do and how do we to approach very two different kind of belief systems? And the scripture, again, the Bible is very clear. It tells us to, to love. That's really the umbrella value that Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, no matter whether they claim to know God or not, and the variance of all that, he's saying, I want you to love them, no matter what. Could you imagine sitting at the table as a, a Christian at that table? You know, as we saw in that video. It, you know, because of some of our stereotyping of, of the Middle East, of, of tattoos, of someone in a wheelchair. I mean, could you believe that the guy in the wheelchair was an extreme sports guy? We, because of those things, until the lights are on, and then the dialogue and the story. So we're commanded to love all those people. But there's more specifics. The scripture is clear, and it gives us, again, some guidelines about what is it that we should be dedicated to doing with this group. And first, those who know God is we're to be encouraging and fighting for one another to live like Jesus. We should be doing everything possible. You're going to see that this morning. To, to cheerlead, to encourage, to do everything we can to help others live like Jesus. Those who don't know God, we should be fighting for every opportunity to help people know Jesus. I mean... It can't get much simpler than that, yet I would say to you, I think in the Christian culture, it's difficult. Now this morning I want to ask you a question, and it has to do with this story. Some of you recognize this picture. This picture happened this week in France. 
Uh, three Americans and a British person, he's not uh, shown here, but three Americans are on a train in, in Paris and, or in France somewhere, and some terrorist with an AK-47 is seen. And if you read the story, it's quite interesting because as one of the guys said, I'm paraphrasing here, let's go get him, shouts it out, another person they had said in the seat says, just leave it alone, Right? Can you not create more commotion? Can we just ride this out and see if we all just kind of end up okay? Well, you know the story. These three take this guy down, and, uh, and many lives are spared. Uh, fortunately, his, his gun had jammed. There was another interesting side story. A whole group of people, and I'm not sure if the reports are saying multiples, locked themselves into their cars now, it's actually a pretty safe thing to do, so we're not going to shame them this morning, but I want you to think about this morning, the church. I want you to think about the bride of Christ, the very thing that Jesus Christ died for our sin and said, I died for the bride, and the bride will be reintroduced me into, to, to me uh, when I return. He dies for the bride. Are we to be fighting for the bride? Or, or do we instead in the church say, hey, listen, don't, don't cause any problems. Really, don't get up. Let's just let this, this ride itself out. Or maybe there's a bunch of people today, which I would say more, are locking themselves into their little silo cars and saying, I, don't, we, I just attend on Sunday morning. Come on, Troy. I'm just here for a little pump you up, a little bit of the music, and I'm going to lock myself into my Christian car for the week, and I'm safe. So the question I'm asking you this morning is, what are you fighting for? Are you fighting for your safety? Are you fighting for your own convenience? Are you fighting to be right? Are you fighting for image? Are you fighting for a, a spiritual pecking order so that God loves you more? What, what are you really fighting for? What are you raise the arms for and say, I'm going to get out of my chair and fight for. Well, I'll say to you this morning, without trying to bait you into this and tricking you, Jesus says clearly, our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against a spiritual force. And the language in the Bible throughout, I could give you multiple passages this morning that would tell you that our fight is for one another, but not against one another. The Scripture does not call us to fight other people. The Scripture does not call us to fight politically or fight the world. Yes, we should vote. Yes, we should be a part of all those things. But the Scripture calls us that we're fighting for one another. I want to pray for us this morning because I think this message this morning, I said it in the first service, might be one of the more difficult messages we've done all year. Not from for me teaching it, but I think for us hearing it. I would say most Christians do not want what I'm going to talk about right now. Let's pray as I ask that God help us listen, right? God in heaven, I pray first that I'm out of your way, that the truth of your scripture gives us clarity on what we're to be fighting for. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you do something special this morning in all of us and grow us more deeply in love with your church. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, this morning I want to dive in and I want to give you two passages. The pacing of this morning's message is really going to give you two applications. But I want to give you two principles on what it looks like to fight for the bride, to fight for the church, to fight for one another and not against each other. Now, I'm going to give you two passages. There are plenty of passages in Scripture that are going to deal with this, but I'm going to, I'm going to hover on two. And so Romans 14, if you have Bibles, you could turn there. Romans 14, chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 14, but verse 1 is probably enough for us to do a whole series on. Here's why. It says, except the one who is, whose faith is weak. Paul's writing this, and Paul already gives us something that we probably just need to embrace and understand this morning. Except the one whose faith is weak. Meaning, there's a group that, whose faith is... That's when you like respond. I mean, Janet just did that with songs. Faith is weak, then there's someone with faith is strong. There is a continuum in the faith, and I think too often we think that we have figured out what a Christian should look like and be like. And Paul is saying there are weak Christians and there are strong ones. There is a, there is a continuum of, of people that have faith, and everyone's faith is not the same. I think this is really important for us because we could quickly stereotype people, right, on where their faith is. So you're out at a restaurant and someone orders a beer. Hmm. Right? We, we've already attached. Or someone picks up a cigarette. Not picks up a cigarette. That would be disturbing. Lights a cigarette. Thank you. Someone's language, the way someone operates. Now, we're not saying that they aren't sinning. I'm just saying, quickly, we measure faith, don't we? Let's just have a confession. How many of you measure, have measured people up and you kind of guess what you think their spirituality is? Those of you who didn't raise your hand, I'm measuring yours right now <laughs> on your, your non-honesty. Yeah, there you go. Except the one whose faith is weak. He's talking to those who have a stronger faith without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, you got to follow me this morning because I'm going to give you some principles here. And so first is this idea that there are strong Christians and there are weak ones. And there's this whole continuum. And as I said earlier, you never know that until you enter their story. But this morning, there's another picture. And I was going to give you a diagram, but I want to do more of a living illustration over disputable matters, quarreling over disputable matters, Paul is saying, you're going to disagree. I think some people, Christians in our culture today, and probably many of us are guilty, there's this idea that we all agree. Paul, Paul is saying, there are a lot of disputable matters. There's a great illustration, and I want to paint it. If this stage were to represent the core of our beliefs, the core. Those core beliefs, I could just quickly, I, I don't think I'll miss any, but the basic is that God, we, we believe in a God that created the heavens and the earth. That God is three in one. There is a, a, a Trinitarian picture throughout Scripture that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, we believe that God sends His Son to earth because of the sin in the world, right? Right? to die, to resurrect, and to, to cover that sin. 
and to pay that price for us so that we might have what? A way to God that Jesus Christ, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus then resurrects and dies, or excuse me, that's backwards. He resurrects and he gives the Holy Spirit and says, I'm going to build my church and the Spirit of God is going to invade the hearts and lives of people and they are going to be the bride, the church, and it's people. It's not programs or logos or buildings. It's the, the people. And those people, that church, would broadcast the love of God to the rest of the world. That's core. This morning, if you claim to know God, that's core. That's what we, we stand on. And that really isn't disputable. If someone would say, I believe that there are three gods, we wouldn't have a problem. We would just disagree. I would put them in that other side. They probably, they're claiming to know God, but really probably don't the way I would believe core. Does that make sense? If this room then represented off of this stage everything else you represent, right, conviction. This is messy. Because we still believe in the scriptures, we believe in that, but we would all agree that for centuries, theologians, Christians, Christ followers would dispute on certain matters. They would dispute on, believe it or not, on can you be sprinkled and baptized or could you, do you have to be fully immersed? I've seen some of our elders try to really get people down there because they, they you know, maybe because in their conviction it's got to be full immersion, right? Uh, women in ministry is one. There could be about communion, how many times you take that. There are a bunch of disputable matters that aren't core. There are disputable matters. Now, we may disagree even on what those disputable matters are, but the Scripture is clear that there are many of those. And so that represents that. Outside of this room in the world is preference. That's where someone says, I really like the hymns. I'm going to go to a church with hymns. I like a church that doesn't have a maze for a parking lot and no construction. I want a no construction church, right? These are preferences. We're not even going to get into preferences because that's more of a consumer mentality. This morning, he's saying, accept those faith who is weak, uh, whose faith is weak without quarreling over all that stuff. Now, that's interesting because... I would say most of our Christian infighting comes from that stuff. It comes from books and disputes and shows and, and conversations and arguments. The friends, the scripture is saying to us, that's not core. You're going to probably continue to struggle through that. And I will just say to you as a teacher, I don't pretend to have all the right convictions I, will st I study a lot. I read a lot. And I am still mystified and on issues I'm floating back and forth sometimes because, not because my feelings changed, because I discover more. So Paul is saying, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Couldn't we just stop here this morning and saying, that's plenty? What if we just did that as the bride? Do you think it would change? I think the church would look so different. He goes on, though, says, One person's faith follows them to eat anything but another whose faith is weak. 
eats only a vegetable. He's going to get into this whole thing about food laws. Because back then, as people were coming to Christ, they were coming out of a Jewish culture that had tons of, here's what you can eat, here's what you can eat, disputable matters. And many were talking about these. And Paul's saying, listen, it's not core. Accept them. I want you to break down, though. I don't think you have the full gamut, the full depth of what it means to accept. The word accept in the scripture broke down uh, into this Greek word, a great word, has these three implications. One, willing to take by the hand in order to lead aside. Being in Africa, one of the most uh, surprising and shocking moments was walking through the slums uh, with a couple of the guys that were uh, Africans there, and all of a sudden them grabbing my hand. Almost like my daughters when we were at like parks or, you know, grabbing your hand for security, all of a sudden a hand was grabbed. And you know, someone grabs your hand, unless you're an active parent and knowing like, but, you know, an adult hand going into your hand, is like, what's going on here? This is a great picture. It's saying to accept the weaker is more than tolerating. Right? So let's, let's paint the picture here. I really don't like the views or beliefs or convictions of some other people, but I'm just going to tolerate them. No, the picture is that you grab their hand and you walk with them. And in Africa, the grabbing of the hand means I'm going to keep this connection. No iPhone, no digital whatever is going to interrupt the connection that we're going to have. We're going to walk together. Second picture is this, to take or receive into one's home. Every one of us would agree, right? That's a, a big form of, of vulnerability or a, or a step into your home is, is kind of opening yourself up. And the third piece here is to grant one access to one's heart. So here's Paul's language. Accept the weaker that you might disagree with. Doesn't mean tolerate doesn't just mean be kind and pretend. It means granting them access to your heart. It means grabbing their hand, inviting them into your home. Accept means so much more than tolerate. You see how we can stop right there. The message, Eugene Peterson, um, is a, a paraphrased Bible. It just means it's written in modern language and it's, it's not exact to some of the Greek terms, but it gives us a great picture of how this would sound in modern language. Listen to this, same passage. Welcome with open arms, fellow believers, who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. Even when it seems that they're strong, they are strong on opinions, but weak in the faith department. You've had those before, right? Ah, they're fighting. They, they're just not as strong as me, you know? Remember they have their own history to deal with. I highlighted that. Friends, we're going to talk about that in the end of this as an application. Do you know their story? Do you even know the journey? And have you taken the time to grab their hand, to invite them in your home, and, and grant them access to your heart by listening to theirs? Accepting the body of Christ is so much more than tolerating the body of Christ. 
Remember that they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. He goes on and says, for instance, a person who's been around for a while might be convinced that he can eat anything at the table, while another with a different background might assume that he should only be a vegetarian and eat accordingly. Now, I love, some of you have these crazy diet plans, you know, and I've heard, like, it's funny with, with lots of things in Christianity, it becomes, there's verses in the Bible and they'll pull them out and it becomes their conviction. Now, I'm not going to slam someone with their conviction and say that's a bad conviction, but it's theirs. But it, and that's what it should be. That's fine. That's yours. As long as it doesn't affect the core of what we can agree with, I need to learn to accept them. It says, but since both are guests at Christ's table, listen to this, wouldn't it be terribly rude if they fell to criticizing what the other ate or didn't eat? You're both guests. God, after all, invited both of them to the table. Listen to these, these lines. Do you have any business crossing people off the guest list? Gosh, i got to confess, I've done that. There was a player for the Packers years ago that I got to know barely, but because of his lifestyle, I said, no, probably won't spend a lot of time with him. Not, not even a Christian. And I'll never forget, because he's being released, this was years later, and I'm working out, and he comes running across the gym. Now, just, you know, any person that large running across the gym, I thought, uh-oh, he's found out I've written him off. I really, I, I felt like I'm, I'm busted. Somehow, somebody got into my head. He ran over and said, hey, Troy, do you think you could spend some time with my wife and I and some of the young couples from the Packers because if I would have known about what marriage is like when I first came, I think I would have treated my wife so differently. He goes, I want to know what God says about that. <laughs> I think we do this all the time. And friends, if you don't believe me, think about your, you have a conviction right now, and you might have written people off in this room because you disagree. That's okay. Paul's saying you can disagree with all those convictions. It's the core that matters. You have no business writing somebody off the guest list. He says, if these are corrections to be made or manners to be learned, God can handle this without your help. <laughs> I think he knows his guest list. 10 to 12. So where does that leave you when you criticize a brother? Where does that leave you when you condescend a, to a sister? I say it leaves you looking pretty silly or worse. Eventually, we're all going to end up kneeling side by side in the place of judgment facing God. Your critical and condescending ways aren't going to improve your position there one bit. However right you may feel about yourselves, all of us sitting in, the, in this room about certain issues, will not raise us in the pecking order in heaven. We will all be kneeling. Changes our perspective. What are you fighting for this morning? Again, I think we should embrace our culture and our government in the sense that we have opportunities to vote and make change. I'm talking about in the church this morning. What are you fighting? Who are you fighting? What are you fighting for? 13 to 14, 
Forget about deciding what's right for each other, because we do that, right? I've done that. If this person only did these things, believed this way, here's what you need to do to do to be or be more concerned about that you don't get in the way of someone else making life more difficult than it already is. I'm convinced, and Jesus convinced me, that everything as it is in itself is holy. We, of course, by the way we treat, treat it or talk about it, can contaminate it. I, you, we, have the potential to be so argumentative, to be so condescending, to be so involved in stereotyping and putting labels on people. We can contaminate the picture of the church. That scares me. So let's all agree to use all of our energy to getting along with each other, helping others with encouraging words. Don't drag them down by finding fault. You're certainly not going to permit an argument over what is served or not served at supper to wreck God's work among you, are you? I said it before and I'll say it again. So be sensitive and courteous to the others who are eating. Don't eat and say or do things that might interfere with the free exchange of love. In the body of Christ, we're committed. We're committed to love and accept one another. I know we're going to have some doctrinal differences and some some ways we interpret Scripture, and that's going to be a lot of our, our convictions. The core we all believe, we can all agree this morning about who God is and who Jesus Christ is and how we need Him in our life and because of our sin. There's a lot out there that we could disagree with, and I think that's why denominations started. And then there's a finger pointing. And it's all the different issues in Scripture that, friends, is so deep. But we're called to love and accept. Notice it's not love and tolerate or just be kind. It's accept. Invite, grant them access to your heart. How do we do this this morning? Great practical step. Start by knowing their story. If you want to know a way to begin to increase the grace measure that you have in your life for people, learning how to love and accept, start to ask questions. You will be shocked. You may disagree with their behavior, but start asking them about their story. And you're going to find a lot, a lot in between that you didn't know, that you didn't understand. And it may be an area that they're living in sin. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you're going to start to unpack more and more, and you're going to have a a breadth of their story that's going to help you understand why they've landed at a conviction, landed in a certain way of living, a certain behavior. I'm not pointing that to as fault or blame. I'm just saying you're going to understand more. And holding that hand alongside of them, helping them love Jesus, you're just going to get a lot more clarity. A lot more clarity. Here's the second passage this morning, and it's from Matthew 18. Now, I have taught this whole chapter before because I believe it's the most taken out of context. And let me tell you why. Because Jesus is going to respond to a question from the disciples. And that is about the who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So like the disciples, right? The super spiritual, the ones that have written many of the, the books of the Bible, and they're worried about who looks most spiritual. Makes me feel pretty good about where we're at today, right? We're still pretty messed up. 
But Matthew 18, Jesus is going to go into all these illustrations, and one is about a shepherd. A shepherd who leaves 99 healthy sheep to go find one lost. It is that principle that I want you to understand in here now, 15 through 17, that it is a God that is a shepherd longing to restore one. It is a shepherd that says, drink of this water, and if you wander off drinking from other rotten pools of water that will make you sick, I want to bring you back. And if you read about shepherding in that time, if a sheep would continue to go out, often a sheep repeating that offense, eventually the shepherd would break its leg and then put that sheep over his shoulders until the sheep was mended. Friends, this is why I think this teaching this morning is tough. What we're talking about this morning, the church isn't doing. Our church isn't doing. And there's a lot of reasons why we're going to get into, but when we start talking about a a person who's living in sin or who has wronged you, the Scripture is clear. I mean, we can go through passage after passage. We're to forgive people. Not just seven times, but 70 times seven. I mean, infinity. There's Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15. It says, if you forgive people and they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But then it says, if you don't, he won't forgive you. That's one of those, that's one of these conviction verses I don't quite get. We might debate on how we interpret that. Does that mean if, if I hold a grudge against somebody and not forgive them, that God will hold that against me? The Scripture is clear where to forgive. I'm talking about you see sin in someone's life. The Scripture is saying we're to be those shepherds that go out. So Paul says it, or I'm sorry, not Paul, but um, Jesus says it this way. Matthew's writing this and says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. What is this implying? That you see it. Okay, so now confession again. For those of you who didn't, weren't honest the first round, you have a chance now to be honest because I forgave you, but God, you know, who knows? Um, I'm so terrible, aren't I? Um, how many of you know someone that is living opposite of what God's called them to live, living different than you think the Scripture said? Raise your hand. Why don't we talk to them? Why don't we go out and fight, not them, but to bring them back? Well, one, what are we going to hear most often? Who are you, Mr. or Mrs. Perfect? You have no right to talk to me because you sin just as much as I do. Well, I agree. You're right. But that's not the point. And if I have sin in my life, Someone that sees it should be what? Coming to me. So first is that you see something and you're to respond to it. You're to go to them. But also, what does it say here in the second part? Just between the two of you. Hmm. I think Romans 14 verse 1, Matthew 18 verse 15 is plenty. Because here's how it goes, right? Hey, I just wanted you to know Bobby is sinning. Do you agree with that? I, good. 
Do you agree with that, Nate? I don't either. And so what do we do? We kind of muster for ourselves a collection of people, right? Why are we doing that? You know what? Because you're fighting for you. You're fighting for your own rightness, your own correct standing. Somehow, someway, you've been distorted and believe a lie that you're more spiritual than someone else. Here's the other one, cloaked in spirituality. This one looks really Christian. Bobby's in sin, but will you pray with me as I go to him? In fact, let's get a big prayer meeting. Pete, you're in that too, so we'll just we'll pull this whole section in, right? Just pray that I have courage to go talk to him. Paul, I mean, not Paul, Jesus is saying, just the two of you. Do you think church culture would be different? It says, just go to them. We'd save ourselves so much pain and heartache. And friends, I do it too. You want to leak out your frustration. You want to gain for yourself a following, right? Yeah, and we get out the pitchforks and the torches and let's go after them. It's really having no courage. It's kind of like, hey, no, no, sit down. Don't go fight that terrorist. Just, let's just let this thing air itself out. It says, if they listen to you, you've won them over. That's such a victory. And just imagine just the two of them. But if they will not listen to you, take one or two others along. So that in every matter may be established with the idea of witnesses. This is Jewish culture bringing a couple witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, this is interesting. I said this last service. That would be an interesting announcement slot, right, every Sunday? Hey, I'm going to read off the list of people that would not listen and are still sinning and repent, non-repentant. So will you stand? Because we're going to ask you to leave. But we took offerings, so we're, it's after offering, right? So... The sad part is the church doesn't do this and probably should. But let me just highlight why. The goal is not punishment. The goal is not embarrassment. Any, any time in, in Old Testament or New Testament there was a sense of reproving or asking someone to lead the community, always the intention was, do you know the word? For Restoration they would eventually be brought back. Christian cultures that punish and excommunicate people with no love or sense of restoration is wrong. It's not biblical. It is called to be restorative and to bring them back. It says if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, this is, again, a conviction thing. This is another conviction, interpretation of that. My interpretation, how did Jesus treat pagans or tax collectors? It puts it in another category for me, right? They obviously must not know Jesus because they're not convicted over their sin. I'm going to go back to square one and love them and hopefully share the hope of Christ. Some would say, no, you have nothing to do with them. That's another conviction ring. I don't know. I know this, I'm still to love. I'm still to love. The second principle this morning is not just to love and accept. It's to seek and restore. Seek and restore. You all know so many people, and what are you waiting for? 
There's a story of Andrew Taylor, a famous evangelist who was in a, a Chinese boat over, uh, over this lake and a man he was sharing the faith with but disputing with him fell overboard and started to drown. They couldn't find him. He, the, Taylor quickly climbed the mast and jumped in to get him but could not find him, kept searching. There was a fishing boat right next to him with nets and he kept asking them for their help and they would not do it unless paid. It took him so long to negotiate a payment for these people that by as soon as they started, they found his body in a net and he had died. I didn't say that story in the first service, but I feel like I need to say it. I think the church is letting a lot of people die by not talking to them about the sin. And the goal as the shepherd is to bring them back, bring them back in out of love. And we need to be people that are seeking and trying to find restoration for the church because one day we will all be in front of this God we love. And friends, it won't be about the test score of what you got right or wrong. He's going to ask you, as he told Peter, did you love the sheep? Were you going out and... and trying to seek and restore them. Galatians 6, 1 through 3 says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, those of you who call yourself Christ, restore that person gently. Watch yourselves, though. You might be tempted. Carry, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law. If anyone thinks that there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Be so cautious when you're beginning to do restoration with people when you're trying to call out something in their lives. The way you do that is humbly bring out the light. Hey, can we have coffee? i got to share with you, my struggle in my faith has been so many years, but at this coffee I want to share with you, I see you living opposite of what God's called you. There's so much more. What, what are you thinking? Instead of the Facebook crud and all the social media that we take sound bites and, and we, there's no middle space to dialogue about what someone's struggle is. And before we try to slap on a stereotypical label, could we begin to love and accept, to, to dig into their story and to seek and restore and to humbly bring to light brothers and sisters who love the same God that you do? I think we have that capability. We have that call. We have that challenge. My question for you this morning before we go to communion, and you guys can come up as you guys start to get ready for worship. Whose church are you building? This morning, you're either building the church of Jesus Christ or you're building the church of you. The church of you kind of centers itself around all the right answers that you've come up with, all the right things that you want in your life, the church of comfort, the, the church of image, the church of rightness. Whose church are you building this morning? Are you fighting for one another? Every one of you this morning has a name of someone you could begin to fight for. 
not with, for. Every one of you this morning has someone that it takes every ounce of you to be kind. And God says, don't just tolerate them. Love and accept them. Come alongside. Grab that hand like a shepherd would the sheep. Friends, this morning as we go to communion, the call is for those only that know Jesus Christ that go to communion. And even the scripture talks about, we didn't deal with that verse this morning, but if you have something of a broken relationship with someone, don't go to the don't go to the cross this morning. Go deal with that with a person. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness. But this morning, ask what fight are you in right now? Whose church are you building? Father, this morning, we ask that you give us grace in the midst of our sin. We ask that you give us... I pray that you convict us on any part in our lives, Father, that we need to confess not only you to you, but to somebody in this room that we've harmed or hurt. Teach us what it means, Father, to be the bride. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.